0: I wanna dive into God's word. We're in the book of Joshua, specifically Joshua chapter two. So you can take your Bible and turn there. And Joshua chapter two is a fascinating chapter. It really is an amazing story that we read in God's word. It's a story of redemption. God uses this woman, a prostitute by the name of Rahab to save two Israelite spies who then in turn promise Rahab, the prostitute, that God will save her. The entire story is a story of God's saving work. It's a story of redemption. And I love that that's what the Bible does. This story is an illustration of the simple fact that we see all throughout the pages of Scripture that God saves sinners. The Bible illustrates profound theological truths and realities in a myriad of beautiful stories like the one we're going to read today. There are countless stories of individuals who are saved by the grace of God. Even stories about war and espionage that include, yes, prostitutes. God shows us in these stories and specifically in this story that he delights in saving sinners And I hope that when you hear that statement, that God delights in saving sinners, that that's not lost on you or that it doesn't sound like some Christian cliche that you've simply gotten used to, but instead I hope that reminds you about your testimony. It reminds you very personally about who you were and now I trust by the grace of God who you are in Christ Jesus. I wanna look at this Chapter together, so let's turn there. And I want to read the entire chapter before we pull it apart. It says, This and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, his name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house his blood shall be on our head but if you tell this business of ours then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear and she said according to your words so be it and then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that the Lord that, that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I'm already losing things up here. Like I said, this story is a story about redemption. The redemption of a, a Gentile prostitute named Rahab. And while God is the main character in this chapter and in all of the Bible, the main human character is this woman Rahab. And in order for us to Understand what's going on here. We need to get to know her a little bit and I want to look at this Chapter through the lens of this woman Rahab and I want us to relate to her in a variety of ways You see as we relate to her We see her clear path to redemption and we see our path to redemption. I want to draw out four realities about our path to redemption first The road of redemption requires that we see our just judgment. Again, the question we need to maybe start with is, is who is Rahab? It's important to consider what this text alludes to, what it gives us about this woman. I I want to remind you, first of all, that she didn't live in a culture like ours that was shaped by Judeo-Christian values or beliefs. She didn't have a Jewish or Christian background. She was a Gentile. A Gentile is just a a fancy word for anybody who's not a Jew. And because she was a Gentile, just consider this, according to the word of God, she did not have any special word from God. God had not spoken to her. God had not given her his word like he had given to his Jewish people. God had not made a special covenant with her like he did the Jewish people. She had no special relationship with God. In fact, she was, as Ephesians 2.12 puts it, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. She was a a hopeless Gentile woman who is estranged from God. Not only that, consider this, she was from this city called Jericho. Now this city had long angered God because of their wickedness, because of their pagan idolatry. This was a, a city that was filled with wickedness and wicked worship unto false gods. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verse 4. God had had reminded his people that they were going to go into the promised land, that they were going to, to conquer and they were going to devote to destruction all these nations. But one of the things he said was when you get there and you begin to see the conquering of this nation, I want you to remember I'm not doing this because of how righteous you are the reason for the destruction, the reason for the conquest of the land has nothing to do with how good or righteous you are because you're not. It has everything to do with how wicked and unrighteous these people are. In in other words, God was executing his divine, just judgment upon a wicked people that he had mercifully let continue to exist for hundreds of years in rebellion against him And at this point in history, as God and his people enter into the land, listen, God's mercy and kindness towards these people who had resisted and rebelled against him so long, listen, it had run out. In just a few days, as we'll read in chapter 6 a little later, God will say that everyone Rahab had ever known, that she had ever grown up with, apart from her family Every person she had ever done life with, her entire culture, every place she had grown up living and existing and visiting, the entirety of it would be utterly devoted to absolute destruction, total judgment, no mercy. Not only that, Rahab herself was part of the problem. She's a Gentile woman, estranged and alienated from God. She lives in a wicked city, but she herself is not a righteous woman. The text identifies her as a, a prostitute, she's not even a stand up citizen in her own pagan nation. She runs a a tavern, which is why the spies go there in the first place, by the way. If you're practicing good spy craft and espionage, you don't go to the Capitol building, you go to the tavern, you go to the place where the riffraff of society tend to hang out because it's there that you have the potential to get good information. Rahab is part of the problem. She's a Gentile from Jericho and she is a sinner. But I want you to see this very clearly, she is a person. She is a person. She had a father and a mother and and sisters and brothers and extended family and like all people, she was created by God and for God. And even in her godless condition, as Acts 17 tells us, she should seek God and perhaps Feel her way toward him and find him. Now, after looking at Rahab, it should not be hard for us to be able to identify with her, to resonate with with her, who she is and, and what she lived in and how she operated. We're not much different from her. Most of us here, maybe all of us, are Gentiles who came into this world with no home, with no promise from God, no guarantee that He would ever look upon us with any kind of favor or kindness. We were all, all of us born into a world that is rebellious towards God that resists his authority, that resists his rule. We have all gone our own ways and our world, it demonstrates this over and over in a variety of different ways. And our world like Jericho, listen, is a place too that will be imminently destroyed by the just judgment of God. Paul says in first, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1 verses eight and nine, that Jesus will return and, and there will be flaming fire. He'll come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, Paul says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is, this is the just judgment that our world awaits and is coming one day soon, the scripture says. And not only that, listen, we have been a part of the problem. Every one of us are sinners just like Rahab. Every one of us, as Paul says in the book of Romans, has fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. And according to Romans chapter one, along with all of the world, we actually know deep down within us that we deserve God's just judgment. And yet, and yet the good news is that we too are people created by God and to know God and to love God. And in our fallen state though, We were at one time alienated from him. God made us to seek him, to feel our way toward him and by his kindness and grace to even find him and lay hold of him. Paul says in Acts 17 that he is not far from any of us. You see, her problem is our problem, but that means as well that her solution is our solution. Like Rahab, the road to redemption requires, secondly, that we show our altered allegiance. So here's the question What did Rahab do? As we read through that passage, I want you to consider how she demonstrated or showed her altered or new allegiance. And, and in all honesty, when you think of Rahab, like what do, you, what do you gotta do to get yourself an entire chapter in the Old Testament? What do you gotta do that's so special then, to be referenced three times in the New Testament by different authors? You gotta do something specific. What exactly did Rahab do to get this kind of credit or this kind of time in the Word of God? Here's the simple answer. She showed genuine hospitality and kindness to God's people. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. She is praised for. Listen to Hebrews 11. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Listen to this. Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She showed unbelievable kindness to them. You say, why is that such a big deal? Well, you can't miss this. In showing these spies kindness, consider this, she is committing an incredible act of treason. They're in the midst of war. The armies of Israel are are not far down across the Jordan. They can see them as they stand upon the wall. They are about to enter into a bloody war. She is betraying her nation. She is betraying her king. Right as the city is preparing to be attacked, she is in the midst of betraying them. And to elevate this, the seriousness of this crime, just consider what she says she knows of Israel in verse 10 and 11. She she knows that this this nation has been rescued by a God who performs miracles. She knows this God has parted the Red Sea. She knows this God has overcome two kings and their armies already prior to them coming into the land of Canaan. And the people, she says, listen, in the city of Jericho, they're melting in fear. Because they know that just outside their walls, the God who obliterates the world's superpowers as if they were a bunch of small children playing make-believe war in the park with sticks, is standing at their gate. The wrath of God and the destruction of God is imminently upon them. They are terrified because they know there is nothing they can do to stop it. All that stands between them and this army is a river. And they know that rivers don't stop this God. So while the the sirens are going off, the city's on red alert, everybody's running around preparing for battle. Rahab welcomes the spies. She treasonously turns her back. Listen, she turns her back on her nation, on her king, and on her gods, and she aligns herself with the people of God and the God of Israel. Word gets back to the king. Word travels fast. And they go to Rahab. The the king sends out some messengers to Rahab and they demand that she give them the spies, which would have been, by the way, the patriotic thing to do, but she doesn't. Why not? Because her allegiance had turned. Her allegiance had completely shifted. And what she does next indicates this. It proves it, it shows it. She tells an incredibly good lie. Did you catch that? She tells an incredible lie. She she gives them a bit of truth. Yeah, yeah, the men were here, you're right. But then she goes on to spin a tale and even appear like she's on their side and she wants them to go get these spies, go get them quickly, you can still catch up with them. Meanwhile, these spies are lying on her roof under the sheaves of flax. And I want you to consider this. They're listening to her. They're hearing the conversation that she's having with the king's men. They are watching her prove her allegiance to the people of God and to the God of Israel. I want you to make a note of this It's clear in the story that she tells this lie because no other response would protect the spies. If she told the truth or if she said nothing, the indication from the text is that these men are dead. There's no way they make it out alive. It's kind of like a Corrie Ten Boom during World War II hiding Jews in her house, protecting them from the Nazis who were banging on the door. And I just want you to notice this, that this woman Rahab, she does this at great personal risk to herself. In aligning herself with God and God's people, she is willing, listen, to forfeit her life. If she is found out, it's almost certainly she would be executed. And I know what you're asking. Was it okay for Rahab to tell this lie? Some of you came this morning just to hear an answer to that question. It's been confusing you. And, and let's be honest, listen, there have been ethicists and theologians who have debated the merits of this for centuries. People go back and forth on whether or not what she did was okay. There's, there's typically three kind of major views. I'll give them to you quickly. The first one is this, that what she did was wrong, but it was necessary. So she, she, she shouldn't have done it, but she should have done it. And then she just asked for forgiveness later. The second view is that it wasn't wrong. It was actually right for her to do, okay for her to do, because she is being faced with two competing moral commands. The command to preserve life or the command to not lie. And so people call this the hierarchy of ethics. She was responsible to choose the greater good in this and to preserve their life. And so it actually makes it okay for her to do this. The third angle on this is that it was simply wrong. She shouldn't have done it, no matter what the cost. You say, well, which one is it? Well, I have an opinion on that, but I'm not gonna share it with you. (laughs) It's an important question and it's one worth discussing, but in all seriousness, I'm not gonna give you my opinion on that right now. Let me tell you why, because it's not the point of this passage. In fact, as you go to the New Testament and you look at Rahab being praised, not one of the New Testament writers even comment on the morality of what she did in this situation. It's simply not the point. And I like what one commentator says, Dale Ralph Davis writes this, he says, it's tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie, quibble endlessly about the matter, and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth, which the writer has conspired to make the center of the whole narrative. So i want to preach the point of this passage i want to preach the point of this text and i'm going to let you figure out what you want to believe on that issue about rahab telling that lie you see what rahab showed in her actions was that she had altered her allegiance that's the point of the story and she had aligned herself with god and i just want to maybe Apply this to your life and to mine. This is so critical to understand. You see, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, God is calling you to commit treason. He's calling you to to commit treason if you ever want to experience the hope of redemption. He's calling you to to commit treason against the gods of this world against the ruler of this world, against the supernatural king Satan of this world. He's calling you to commit treason against the kingdom of darkness. And he's calling you to show your allegiance to God alone. It's easy for us To get lost in this world, to get caught up in this world, and to find ourselves, if we're honest, more aligned with the values and the principles and the ethics of this world than we are with the values and the principles and the ethics and the truth of God's word. And God wants his people to stand out in this world. He wants his people, listen, to take the risk, to count the cost, and to prove by their life, by their actions, that their allegiance is to him and to him alone. That they have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That he and he alone is their ruler and their king and they follow him knees bowed. Like Rahab, James tells us this. Rahab, it says in James 2.25, in the same way as uh, not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In other words, James, who is arguing that uh, we're justified by faith, but listen, faith without works is what? It's dead. He says, look what she did. Her actions proved, it proved what's most important about her life. It proved that her allegiance had been altered. And that gets us to the very point of this passage. And that is this, listen, the faith of Rahab. And you see, the path of redemption requires that we, like Rahab, thirdly, state our firm faith. We declare it. We proclaim it. And by the way, this is true for all those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 19 tells us as much that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord then we shall be saved. There is a requirement, yes, to to live our faith, but there is a requirement to state, to declare what we believe. So the question is, what exactly did Rahab believe? What's the substance of her faith? Well, verses 8 through 14, they really form the heart of this chapter. They give us an incredible picture of her faith. Verse 8, we see this, that she knew that Jericho would not have this land for long. She's come to share the faith of Israel, to believe that God had promised Israel this land. You so say, why did she believe this? She'd seen the writing on the wall. We kind of already talked about that in verse 9, right? And 10, she says this, for we have heard how the Lord had done all these things. She says, I've heard what's happened. And I see you on the other side of the river and I know that God is giving you this land. She had come to see something of the power of God, to believe in the ultimate power of God. Verse 11 affirms this for us. Rahab affirmed that Israel's God had dominion, listen, over the realms of the heavens and the earth. And when she says this, you have to put this in context. She's acknowledging and declaring the supremacy of Israel's God over all creation. And by doing that, she was in effect declaring that God's, the gods that she used to worship, the gods of the Canaanite people, and there were many of them, that those gods were not worthy of worship and were in fact no gods at all. She's bowed the knee by faith to the one true and living God and is giving Him alone exclusive worship and total allegiance. And that's what worship is ultimately in the Christian life. That's what faith looks like. Exclusive worship to God, total allegiance to Him. She knows this God rules and reigns and she knows this God is taking what is rightfully His, the land, She sees, she sees the armies advancing. She sees the conquest is inevitable and the God leading the charge is unstoppable. She sees that this God is giving this land to his children and he is going to judge and conquer his enemies. And by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, this is one of the very reasons you too should repent and believe. Jesus Christ, when he walked on this earth, he proclaimed this message, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, listen, why? Because there is a kingdom that's coming. Its advancement is absolutely sure, it's guaranteed. And it began in one sense 2000 years ago. It started with a man named Jesus Christ, the son of God, God who came and took on flesh. Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross, dying for the sins of humanity, for all those who would believe. He rose three days later from the grave, and in doing so, he was demonstrating that he was conquering sin and death. Colossians 2 tells us, listen, of the the conquering advancement of the kingdom when it says that through the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and powers, the supernatural powers of this age. And then Jesus, he gathered 11 men together and he declared to them that all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He took these 11 guys and he said, go unto all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go in my authority, the king said. You've been entrusted with my authority, and the plan is to advance my kingdom. It is to keep conquering, to move the gospel outwards. And then he takes 120 people in the, the beginning of the book of Acts. They're in a room praying and waiting, and the Spirit of God descends upon them and fills them not only with the presence of God, but with the power of God. And they are charged with the task, listen, of going to, from Jerusalem to all Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, listen church, now this kingdom, the kingdom is in the kingdom of Christ, excuse me, is in the church, it is the church of Jesus Christ advancing the kingdom of God and this kingdom, if we just look out across the globe, it's a kingdom that is advancing across the, the nations. It is moving from continents to countries to cities. It is conquering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is conquering people, listen, who have never heard the gospel before. It's conquering people who have been religious and bowed their knee to other gods. It's conquering people who thought they were too far off to be rescued. It is moving out through God's people, through the church church and it is bringing people to their knees in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith to, in Jesus Christ it is a kingdom listen that no matter where you put it it cannot be stopped Jesus said the kingdom is at hand Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. You see, this is a kingdom that must be responded to. It must be dealt with. It is an unstoppable, unshakable, eternal kingdom that one day will come in its fullness. Jesus Christ is returning, the book of Revelation says, with a sword out of his mouth, and he's coming to conquer his enemies and to establish his kingdom upon this earth in its fullness. She saw Rahab, the kingdom of God advancing in her time and she believed. Why did she believe and not everyone else? Everybody else had the same knowledge as her. We saw that the whole city is melting in fear. They've they've talked about, for 40 years, they've talked about this nation, Israel, who has a God who delivers them from the superpowers of the world, who just crushes the armies of Egypt, who parts the seas, who destroys kings and kingdoms. Why, why, Why didn't they believe? See, the difference between the city of Jericho and this woman Rahab is that she saw his coming judgment and she cried out while she had the chance. She says to them, swear to me by the Lord. In other words, I know that if you swear by this God, it will be done. I see that this God is faithful. I see that this God is true. Be kind to me, she says. Save me, not just me. I love this. My, my mother and my father and my families and their families, save us, please. You see, She cries out for mercy. And these, these men, these spies, these noble men, I love that. Listen to what they say. Our life for yours, even unto death. We will deal kindly and faithfully with you as you have dealt kindly and faithfully with us. Church, there's a lesson here. There isn't a person alive who should not melt at the thought of the coming judgment of God. But so few cry out for mercy. Even in the end, this is is the sad reality of the book of Revelation, even in the end, listen, while Jesus Christ is pouring out judgment upon the earth, the whole earth begins to shake. Rather than turn and run to Jesus and repent of their sins, the people crawl into rocks and beg that the rocks would fall on them and kill them. So few people cry out for mercy in the face, even of coming judgment, even in knowing that judgment is coming. In church, we are given the task to proclaim that mercy is available. Jesus has not yet returned. That means mercy is available. God will deal kindly and faithfully with all those who turn to him. And by the way, if you turn to Jesus, you can know for sure. I think of Rahab in this situation who who had to put her hope in these men to trust that they were going to fulfill their word. You can know today that if you cry out for mercy, it is guaranteed you can know for sure that you will be saved. Not a single person who cries out for mercy and clings by faith to Jesus Christ and his finished work will be cast away. Not one will be lost. All will be rescued and redeemed because Jesus saves sinners. He saves all kinds of sinners. He saves prostitutes and murderers and thieves and liars and drunkards and greedy, selfish, God-hating individuals. He saves them all the same way. He breaks them down, he exposes their sin, and then he draws them in and shows them the beauty of his saving grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All can receive mercy through Jesus. And that leads us to our final point. Our redemption requires that we savor our magnificent mercy. What we see unfolding in the end of the story is that Rahab sends these men out. They're spared. They're rescued, so to speak, by God and through the work of Rahab. And the spies make it back to Joshua and they let him know that certainly God in his kindness, listen, God had already told them that the land was theirs. You can kind of see like, why did they send the spies in? It's kind of like an added bonus. God in his kindness just affirms. Don't you see? Don't you see? I mean, you go in there and check it out for yourself. These people are melting in fear and they come back and declare, certainly God has given us this land. God is a faithful God. And I just want to draw out a few last thoughts for you as we close our time this morning. And I want to demonstrate to you God's magnificent mercy in the life of Rahab. And I trust that these things are true in your life too, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at it like this. I want to answer this question. What does God give to Rahab? What does God give her? He takes this prostitute, this Gentile prostitute in the city of Jericho, and he gives her Five things, five things that he gives, I think to each one of us as well, by his mercy. The first thing he gives to her is salvation. He gives to her salvation by his grace. He saves her from the wrath of God, the just judgment of God that is going to be leveled out on this city in Joshua chapter six, we're gonna read about it. The destruction that's coming, only Rahab and all of her house shall live she had changed allegiances. And God commands that she be spared his wrath because she is now part of his kingdom. Paul writes this about all of us listening to Christ Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 5:19. for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is returning And when he does, listen, here's the good news. If you're in Christ, his sword will not strike you because he struck his son in your place. Jesus received the justice of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, so that you and I could be spared and welcomed in as children. That is the hope of salvation. And that's what God gives to us. Secondly, he gives her and he gives us security. It's interesting that God not only saves her, but he doesn't cast her off. He doesn't make her move to another city once the conquest is over. He gives her a place among God's people. She becomes an Israelite. She's grafted in and she becomes a part of the family of God. She she belongs with the people of God. Chapter six and verse five tells us that She lived in Israel to this day, to the day that this book was being written. Rahab lived there amongst the people of God. She did life with them. She fellowshiped with them. She worshiped God with them. She was embraced by them. I imagine she was celebrated by them for her work. God working through her to bring about his victory. And guess what? If you turn to Jesus Christ, you get that same security. God gives it to you. Jesus said it like this, Can you imagine Rahab? Can you imagine everything being destroyed? Here's what Jesus says about the gospel. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come in eternal life. No matter what your past, he will give you a place amongst the saints. That's what he does for sinners. That's his magnificent mercy Third, notice this, he gives her a story. He gives her a story. I already mentioned she gets a whole chapter in the book of Joshua and she can be referenced again in chapter six. She's referenced three times in the New Testament. And my point in saying that is is that he gives her something to do. He includes her in his grand story. She becomes an integral part in what God is doing to advance his kingdom and his glory. And this is what God does for everybody who bows the knee to Jesus. You get a part in his story. Your story becomes his story. I just want you to think about this for a second. This is so awesome. We, we at the beginning of this pandemic, we, we went through the book of Ruth. You remember that? Such a sweet time studying that book together. But can I remind you in that book, Boaz, this man Boaz, he stands out as a, as a redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer and he's a, he's a figure that points us to Jesus. Jesus is, is like Boaz, Boaz is like Jesus. He saves those who are destitute and hurting and broken and lost and hopeless and helpless. Do you know whose womb Boaz was knit together in? Rahabs. no wonder Boaz was willing to extend mercy to a Gentile named Ruth God takes this prostitute who had a sordid past and a broken lifestyle he saved her and used her and she even raises a biblical hero And more than that, if you turn to Matthew and read the genealogy of Jesus, guess who is placed in the genealogy of Jesus? Rahab. God uses her not just to save his people, he uses her to bring about the savior of the world. I wonder if Jesus had Rahab's eyes. Fourth, God gives her in his magnificent mercy, listen, as a standard, as a role model, as an example. God made Rahab a role model for every single Christian throughout the millennia. Hebrews 11, 30 through 31, we already read it. It it talks about the faith of Rahab, that she is a part of the great cloud of witnesses that the church is to follow. And listen, that, that means this, here's Rahab, this woman who's a prostitute, who's used by God, and now she's held up as a paradigm of the faith, and the word of God says, look at her faith, have faith like that, trust God like that. And here's why that's so awesome and encouraging for you and I, because no matter where you came from, no matter what your past is, you can be a role model for others in the faith. You can be an example for others to follow You can be someone who makes disciples, who look like Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what baggage you come into the kingdom of God with. It doesn't matter how broken you come in. God can take you and do miraculous things. And and that's what I trust that God is doing in this church, that God is taking people who used to be drunkards and drug addicts, and he's raising them up to be elders in this church. That God is taking people who... Uh, committed adultery or maybe who are even prostitutes and he's raising them up, listen, to lead in their families and in their homes and to point their children to Jesus Christ to be fathers and mothers who live out the gospel in their home. God is taking people who have come into the kingdom of God depressed and hopeless and broken, living a life of despair and then God in his grace is strengthening them and building them up and he's placing them as leaders in the church. He's taking divorced men and he's turning them into model husbands and fathers. God takes all sinners by his grace and he can use them, listen, as examples of what it looks like to have faith and to follow Jesus faithfully. May God do this in our midst. Take people who are on a path to destruction but instead place them on the road to redemption and such were some of you, right? But we have been washed, justified, and sanctified all by the blood of Jesus. This is what God does when he saves sinners. He takes them down the road to redemption from seeing his just judgment to savoring his magnificent mercy. Don't ever think, listen, don't ever think that God can't show you mercy. Don't ever think you're beyond the reach of God's kindness and grace. Don't ever think that if you don't come to the foot of a cross in repentance, that God won't grab a hold of you and welcome you as a child and lift you up and restore you and strengthen you and use you in His kingdom for His glory. This is what God does. And lastly, God gives to her a sign. Did you notice that? I know Rahab's story is famous for this scarlet cord. She lets the men down from her window with this scarlet cord and they tell her, take this cord. It's a sign for you, put it up in your window. And when we attack, we're going to know that nobody inside this house is destroyed. You are spared. And God's sign acts as a a kindness, as a grace to her. As she hung that up, not only was it a reminder for the people who were attacking the city to destroy, it was a reminder for her. Look, God has said he would spare you. Every time you get nervous, you hear the army coming, you hear them marching around the walls, God has chosen to spare you. It would have been a kind reminder of God. God loves to give signs to his people. You say, what what does the scarlet cord mean exactly? What does it point to? Well, I don't know that we can say definitively, but I think we can say with some assurance, this is a sign of her salvation. And I think it actually is linked with the Passover celebration. It's fascinating at the end of chapter five, what we read is that as Rahab is waiting with the scarlet cord hanging in her window with all of her family, The people of God are celebrating the Passover, preparing to enter the land. And on that Passover from Egypt, that first Passover, the people of God were told to take that the red blood of the lamb and paint it on their doorpost and their doorframe. And then when the angel of destruction comes into the city and begins to wipe out the firstborn, everybody who is tucked into this home, everybody here, listen, they're protected by the blood of the lamb. They will be spared. I don't think it's any coincidence that as the people of God celebrate the Passover with their families inside the home, remembering God's divine kindness and grace and mercy, so too Rahab and her family are waiting in their home, a red cord hanging from the window, a sign from God that they too will be spared and counted among the people of God. And you know, this morning, we get to celebrate a sign of our own. God, as we know, Jesus, he transformed that Passover feast into the Lord's Supper. The sign of the Passover, the sign that even Rahab, I think, was experiencing, was pointing towards the greater sign of Jesus Christ fulfilling that Passover, the Passover lamb of God, whose blood was shed. And because we are covered by that blood, we too are spared. His body broken for us. And this symbol, this sign is important. This is supposed to remind us of our salvation, to refresh our souls, to revive us, and to help us to hold fast and remember, listen, that our Lord is coming back. The final salvation is coming. And that God invites all those, listen, who are awaiting that day of his fullness of his kingdom to to reflect and to come to him, to repent and to believe and to trust by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to do that this morning together. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're saved, if you've been baptized as a believer, as a sign of your faith, this is a constant reminder of God's kindness in salvation to you. There's uh, two pieces there that we wanna be able to peel off. The first one gives you the wafer, the second one the juice, so just be careful with that. And uh, one warning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please just let this pass. Just watch and observe. My prayer is that this sign is something that speaks to you about what God wants to do for you. The kindness and mercy that he wants to extend to you. And you are welcome to repent and believe today. And find mercy and grace. And secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you're living in willful sin. That is sin that you're unwilling to repent of. You know, you know it's sin, but you're choosing it over obedience to Jesus and over repentance, just let this pass. Um, don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. But I would, I would plead with you, instead of letting this pass, repent. See the kindness of the Lord. See his mercy and grace to you today. Let's bow together and pray, and then we'll take this together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your redemption. We thank you, Lord, for the sign that you've given us, that we hold in our hands the bread and the juice reminding us, Lord, of your body that was broken for us, reminding us of your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. God, we pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us now by your grace and your mercy. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On that night, Jesus took the bread first. He broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. He took the cup in the same way, reminding them that this was a sign of the new covenant with his blood and the forgiveness of their sins. Let's remember that together. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your grace. You are good to us. We realize, Lord, that we deserve nothing but judgment because of our rebellion against you. But Father, you have shown us mercy. You have shown us grace. And God, we pray that as we reflect on your great love for us, your children, that we too, Lord, would love you. That God, our redemption this morning would be a reminder of your faithfulness to us. May you keep us faithful to you. May you anchor our hope and our trust and our joy in you, in you alone. Help us, Lord, to live out our allegiance to you. Help us to be bold in our witness, Lord, in our testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that you would use us, your people, to advance your kingdom for our good and for your glory. Do this, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.